Uh, before we get started, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you've been very kind to us. You've given us your word. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. And Lord, we pray that now as we uh, discuss your son according to the word, that you would allow the spirit to empower us in understanding, Lord, that we could grow a deeper knowledge and appreciation of who Christ is, uh, what he's done, and the joy that we can find in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, great. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to, uh, to, to help you all study. And as we study the essential truths of the Christian faith by R.C. Sproul, looks like some of you have the book, which is great. Um, how many of y'all have read the chapters we're going over today? All but 28. Okay, so good, good, good. A little bit, um, and you've read them all. Great, great. Gotcha. When, uh, if we get to sections that you have questions on, please ask. Uh, so as you're reading it, RC, as we talked about earlier, he's brilliant, but sometimes he's extremely dense, which is fine. How you doing, Greg? Morning. Good to see you, brother. You too. Um, but let's, let's, yeah, let's ask questions if we had it as we were reading, and, uh, and hopefully we can unpack those. So have a PowerPoint with us that we can follow along with. Uh, the first slide, I just want to kind of share a little bit who I am, why I'm here, why I'm standing here, why, why Dr. Evers asked uh, if I would come and, and share in this class. So my name is Matt Risher. Um, this is my wife, Bethany. And you've seen the picture. There's a little wee one right there on Bethany's lap. That's Noelle. Uh, she turns two in about a week and a half. And she's been an extreme uh, delight to us. Um, so much fun, so much energy, talking now all the time. Um, We've been members here since 2019, so four years. We made it through COVID. We've made it through a lot of stuff here. Uh, really grateful for our elders and uh, for the, the members and the friends we have here. Uh, particularly, we're really close to the Coleman family. So if you know Mike and Paula, Paula's been like a second mother to Bethany. Um, I, I tell people all the time that you won't see Paula in heaven uh, because she'll be too close to the throne. I mean, she is uh, the, the godliest saint that I've ever met in my life and, and really grateful for their family. I think today's actually Mike's birthday as well. So if you know the Coleman's and see Mike, uh, be sure to tell him a happy birthday. Um, and there's a myriad of families we're close to, but I like to, to pay special homage to them. I work at Spurgeon College, which if you're familiar with Midwestern Seminary, that's the master's school. I work at the college as the director of, of athletics. Um, I did my master's there. Hopefully, in 2024, I'll finish my doctorate there. And, uh, and yeah, it's really been a joy being here at Faith, being in Kansas City, and uh, growing our, our little family. So jumping into the book, um, we're going to do the chapters out of order. So we're going to start with chapter 25. We're going to jump to chapter 27, then back to 26, and then, if we have time, finish at 28. Um, how I've set all my slides up, we're going to see what RC says. I'll add a few additional thoughts. And then uh, we'll move on to the next slide. So, chapter 25 is on the deity of Christ. And the interesting. Photos of that, would you mind? What's that? May I take photos of your slides? I can send it to you. I can email it to you after. Thank yeah, you. yeah, absolutely. Uh, interestingly enough, probably few doctrines have been as debated as the deity of Christ. Uh, even today, there's cult groups that don't accept the deity of Christ. A few of them you might know uh, Islam does not accept the deity of Christ. They, they don't believe Christ was divine. Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, have weird understandings of the deity of Christ. They wouldn't agree with our understanding that Christ is truly divine. One of the first things we see that R.C. says about this doctrine is it's not just a pedantic doctrine. It's not something you can get wrong. He describes it as an essential doctrine. Uh, 
when you're listening to, and you, there's a lot of doctrines that are thrown out there. You have the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. We have a few that we're talking about today. Uh, baptism. There's the doctrine of baptism. There's some doctrines that you can afford, we'll say grace, in, where, where differences of opinions are okay. But there's a few doctrines where differences of opinions are not okay. And R.C. makes it very clear. This is one you can't have a different opinion and be considered part of the fold. You can't have a different opinion on the deity of Christ, God being, or Christ being God, and be considered a Christian. Uh, the new members class is going on right now. If you go and you meet with our pastors and you're trying to join membership and they ask you, well, was Jesus fully God? And you say, well, I don't think so, or, or no, I don't know if he was fully God. You will not be allowed to be a member here. You won't be considered a Christian. This doctrine is essential. This is something you cannot get wrong and go to heaven. Um, there's a few areas where people try to attack the deity of Christ. Cult groups throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, uh, try to attack the, the deity of Christ. And it's not an easy doctrine to grasp, right? We're thinking of you go through the whole Old Testament. You have one God who's leading Israel through the wilderness, who's leading them through the reigns of the kings, who's leading them into exile, then out of exile. And then this person comes, and he's a man, and he walks the earth, and he describes himself as one with God, as the very nature of God himself. But one of the places that often is cited in an attack against the deity of Christ, and, and R.C. brings this up, is the word begotten in John 3.16. Uh, usually the King James versions, the, the, the translation that uses uh, the term begotten, if you read some of the newer translations, it'll say the only son or the one and only son or unique son of God. Um, but the word there is, is managanes, right? And uh, R.C. doesn't go into great detail about this word, but it's an important word to understand because this is the term that they cling on to and like it, they go, hey, look, it's begotten, it's made, it's something that wasn't there before that now has come into being. But that doesn't fit the very definition of God, right? God cannot have come into being. God is the great cause of all beings, so monogamous, it's a word that's important to understand, and that's the word that gets latched onto. There's kind of two ways that it's defined throughout the scriptures. One is pertaining to being the only one of its kind or in a specific relationship. Uh, this meaning we see in Hebrews 11 when it refers to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Again, using the King James language, but if you think of Isaac and Abraham, their relationship, was he his only son? He had another son, right? Ishmael. Ishmael, right? So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he uses this word monogenes? Well, he means a unique relationship, a specific relationship that Abraham had with Isaac. Second definition is pertaining to being the only one of its kind or its class or uniqueness, right? And we see this meaning that's probably the one that's implied in John 3.16 because we see it elsewhere in John's Gospels and John's writings. Uh, we see it in John 1, 14, 18, and 3, 18, and 1 John 4, 9. He was primarily, that is John, concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God and uses this word to highlight, monogamous, to highlight that Jesus is uniquely God's Son. And we consider ourselves the children of God as well. We are the children of God. But Jesus is the Son of God in a unique way. He is sharing in the same divine nature as God. Um, as opposed to us, we don't share in the divine nature, but we're still adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus is the one and only son in a unique way. 
And that's the point John is getting at in John 3.16. So when we understand the term begotten, we shouldn't think made. Or if you read, again, the newer translation, one and only is probably a better rendering of it. So you can understand this, a unique relationship between God the Son and God the Father. We'll talk more about the relationships within the Trinities, uh, chapter 27, uh, here in a little bit. One thing that R.C. wants us to understand is that Jesus is of the same essence of God the Father. They're not distinct in their essences, they're distinct in their persons. So there's one God and three persons. Um, there's this, uh, Council of Nicaea comes and there's this debate between essence or likeness. Is Jesus of the same essence as God, the same being as God, or is this essence, is this being like God but not? And that's what's going on. We have a teacher in the 4th century whose name is Arius, and he's on one side of the debate. And he's talking about and teaching that, and this, is, this isn't just like a wacko. This is a guy who's very influential in the church. This is a guy who's, who's a bishop, who's leading uh, massive swaths of this new Christian sect that's formed out of, out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, that's exploded into the world. And he's teaching a few things that are important for us to know. He's teaching that there was a time when Christ was not. Again, we've got to think about the definition of, of God. Can God not exist? Well, no. God is eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He teaches that Jesus was the first created being. The first, the most glorious, the highest. Some of these things, if you're familiar with cult groups, should sound familiar. right? The devil's not super creative. He kind of runs the same plays over and over again through different sects, through different people at different times. And he argued for what a term that they used called homoi, Uzias. Do I have, I have a whiteboard? You have it up there on your thing. Oh, I have it up there on my thing. Yes. <laughs> I forget about it. I'm hard So the debate really is over a letter. If you see right here, we have homo Uzias, which is same essence, or homoi Uzias, of a like essence. One letter separates them. It's that little I. Right? Who is going to win the day? This will determine the great majority of Christendom, how we understand who Christ is. This isn't a minor battle. This is one of the most major battles in church history, right? And you may have loosely have heard of the Council of Nicaea before. Uh, maybe something that, you know, you hear in a sermon every once in a while, or maybe you read in a book that you're, you're studying. Um, but don't miss the significance of this event. You have these men who are, who are rifling through the scriptures to figure out, well, what is our doctrine? How do we actually apply this? How do we actually understand everything that Jesus, this Jesus event that changed the whole world, how do we fully and rightly understand this? Right? And they don't have Wayne Grudem systematic to tell them. Right? They're having to look through the scriptures. Well, what does John say? What does Peter say? What does James say? How should we understand who Christ is? This was the battle. One of the evidences that R.C. gives for the deity of Christ are the I am statements. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to do a quick Bible flipping and reading some, some text. Right? These I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John, I think we have one today in the sermon, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I am the door is today. Yeah, yes. yeah John 10, 1. Um, we're just going to read through them real quick, and then we're going to uh, lay them on a foundation to understand what is Jesus saying when he makes these statements? What, are, what is Jesus saying when he makes his claims? Um, can someone go John 6, verse 35? Yep. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Again, remember, Jesus is walking around at this moment as a man, right? People are trying to figure out who is this guy. He's been doing some pretty extraordinary things, and he's been frustrating a lot of interesting people. Who is this guy? And he makes this claim. Uh, someone, can you do John eight twelve? Whenever you get there, yeah, you can just read out. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pretty bold statement, right? Pretty bold statement for someone if they were just a man. I am the light of the world. Uh, we won't read all of them. Let's go to John 14.6, probably one of the more famous I am statements. John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Good. And then we'll read Exodus 3.14. So you've got to flip back to the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3. What's going on here is Moses is trying to figure out, who do I tell the people of Israel that sent me? Who am I going to tell them that, that uh, I am I'm speaking on behalf of? So Exodus 3.14, who has that text? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you to you. So God is revealing himself to Moses, right? Moses is going to lead his people through the wilderness to the promised land. Joshua will eventually go and help conquer the promised land. And he asked him, well, who sent me? And Jesus said, I am who I am. Or God says, I am who I am. Fast forward a few hundred, a little over a thousand years. And this man's walking the earth, and he's going, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. Anyone enters me through me. And he's repeating the same phrase. What's he, what's he ascribing to himself? He's saying, I am one with the Father. I am he who is in Exodus 3. I am he who is in Genesis 1. I am the I am. That is why they killed him. That's actually one of the most striking things if you ask a skeptic or, or, uh, or a false teacher who denies the deity of Christ. Well, then why did they kill him? Well, if he wasn't saying he was God, why did they kill him? What was the charge they brought against him? Anyone know? It's blasphemy, right? It's making himself equal with God. That's why they killed him. That's why the Jews were so upset and went to the Romans that he's going to create an uproar. We've got to get rid of this guy. He's saying he's God. They didn't kill him because he was just a, a teacher that kept making them look foolish. They killed him because he said he was the very God of eternity. One thing, that last note here about that R.C. has for us. Jesus, yes, he has a divine nature. Uh, but he also has a human nature. And these natures, they are said to be without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. We'll unpack that a little bit more when we get to the humanity, but he, he kind of defines this section. He goes, these two natures, there's no mixture, confusion, separation, or division. And what he'll get to eventually in the humanity section is the hypostatic union, which again, I will talk about in that section. So when I get to additional thoughts, these are thoughts that I had on the text, things that I thought were important to bring out that maybe RC didn't touch. The first one is Athanasius. 
So I talked about Arius, what he was teaching. He was teaching that there was a time when Christ was not, that Jesus was the first created being, and that he argued for homo, or homoousia. Well, who taught on the good side? Who taught the correct things? Well, it wasn't really Athanasius. It was his bishop at the time, Alexander, who was the bishop of, uh, who was the bishop of uh, Alexandria. He was the one in the room in the Council of Nicaea fighting for and arguing for same essence. So Arius is on one side, Alexander's on the other side. Nicaea happens, Alexander dies a few years shortly after that, and then this man, Athanasius, takes that bishop seat. Well, the story of Athanasius should excite us, it should encourage us, because Athanasius was a stalwart for the truth. He was the one who was advocating for Homoousia, same likeness, or uh, same being, same essence, following Council of Nicaea, because Nicaea didn't really settle it. Yes, there was a vote. Yes, it was, it was concretized into uh, doctrine, orthodox doctrine, but there was still this debate. People were still trying to teach like essence. Churches across the world were still understanding what Arius taught and were following him, and there were actually movements trying to overturn the decisions at Nicaea. So who was going to stand in the gap? One individual who really liked the teaching of Arius, was the son of Constantine. And he didn't like Athanasius at all. So he sent Athanasius into exile for teaching the Council of Nicaea's doctrine, same essence. He was later uh, relieved from his exile, only to be sent back into it again for seven years. So Athanasius' teaching, no, Jesus is of the same essence of God. He is the very being of God. Off into exile. All right, come back. Okay, good. Keep teaching. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. No, Jesus is God. Okay, get out of here. Exile again. Five times he went through exile, totaling 18 years of his life. In exile for what? For teaching that Jesus was truly God. He was unrelenting in his pursuit, in his teaching of what we hold so dear today. Right? And you hear that term exile, and for us, I doubt anyone here, maybe, possibly not, no one here has been in exile or understands the experience of what that is. There's people in the world today who understand exile. You think of Israel, they went through an exile. That's leaving your home, your family, your job, your loved ones, everybody gone, out of your country to a foreign land to figure things out. That's exile. That means today you don't go home. You don't go pick up your belongings. You go away into a place where they don't speak your language usually. There's no job for you there. You got what's on your back, and that's it. And he did that time and time and time again. Because why? Because he looked at the scriptures and he said, no, it looks like Jesus is God, and I'm going to die with that. This is a doctrine worth dying for. It is essential. Uh, J. Mason Gresham, I thought this quote was really important when it comes to the deity of Christ. Right, this is what he says. He says, the next thing less than the infinite is infinitely less. So what he's saying there is if you just take one step away from infinite, right? If God is infinite, infinity, you know, if you take one step away from that, it's infinitely away from that. Jesus is infinite. If you try to mess with that at all, you completely rip who he is from him. Move from chapter 25 to chapter 27. Like I said, I'm going to skip uh, 26 and come back to it. Go deity, go to humanity. Now we're looking at the humanity of Christ. 
Not only were there attacks on the deity of Christ, Jesus, of course, could not have been God, is the uh, verdict that people would say. There's others who would say, well, Jesus, no way he could be man. Not a man. A man can't do those things. Uh, R.C. mentions the Council of Chalcedon, where there's the battle over the deity uh, that eventually, of Nicaea, eventually leads to the battle over the humanity of Christ. And at Chalcedon, they, they sought to really uh, put into place, to, to I, I like the word concretize, the idea of the nature of Christ as human, and that that nature is not mixed or the same as his divine nature. Jesus has two natures. There's two primary attacks in the first few centuries against the humanity of Christ. The first one is docetism. Uh, This is teaching that Jesus didn't have a real human body, that his body only seemed like a human body. Uh, When you think about it, again, sometimes we read false teachers and we think they just have the most malicious motives. Sometimes we read the Pharisees and we just think, man, these are just evil, God-hating people, right? But if you pause and you look at the Pharisees and you go, what's motivating them? They're religious people. They say they love God. And actually people look at them and they go, well, these are the people of God, right? These are the people who are fasting, who are giving, who are working in the temple. These are the true people of God. But we read the scriptures and go, man, these people seem evil and wicked. When we look at those who are teaching uh, docetism, docetism, what could be their motivation to say, no, Jesus' body wasn't really human. It only seemed human. What do you think? Was it coming from just a malicious place, or were they just confused? To separate him from the, the weakness of the flesh and the effects of the fall. Exactly, yeah. They were trying to elevate Christ. They were saying, of course he couldn't be human, because humans are fallen, and they're weak, and they're frail, and Jesus isn't that. He's powerful, and he's mighty, and he's big. He's God and God and God. So I'm sure that they're not trying, that's a weird, interesting way to put it, to distort the Christian faith intentionally, uh, but they are. Their desire to make something Jesus outside of the scriptures led them to exalt him to something that he wasn't. It took away something that's actually extremely glorious to him, his humanity. So this is one of the battles on the attack of the humanity of Christ. The other one is the monophysite heresy. And that this is Jesus' nature was mixed. It was one nature. So a little bit of divine, a little bit of uh, deity. You put it in a blender and and you get one nature. This is not how we are to understand the nature of Christ. Uh, What that does, it either deifies a human nature or it humanizes the divine nature. But what we see and we read in the scriptures is Jesus has two natures. He is fully, truly divine. And he is also fully and truly human. These two natures are not mixed, uh, but they are uh, both Christ's. And this is where the term hypostatic union comes in. Did I put it on there? Hypostatic union? I didn't. I think I erased it for time. Uh, but this concept, this idea that these two natures are, are uh, attached, they're a part of each other, but they're never intermingled. Right? Uh, where we have one nature, where you have a human nature, Jesus has two. He is fully human, so he can relate to us, and he is fully God, so he can relate to Yahweh on our behalf. We also see in the humanity of Christ, R.C. lays out the limitations of Christ. He 
reminds us that we see in the scriptures that the humanity of Christ, in the humanity of Christ, Jesus is not omniscient. He doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. We see that he experienced hunger and thirst, pain, tiredness, temptation, which is an important point we have to get to because that can lead to some interesting questions. He experienced a full emotional life. We see moments where Jesus is wildly upset, angry, right, in the temple. We see moments where Jesus is sad and crying and weeping over the loss of a loved one. Leads to a few questions, like I mentioned, about the temptation of Christ, but even the idea of where is Christ now. So we'll start there. Concerning his human nature, Christ is no longer with us. He's ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father. However, in his divine nature, Christ is never absent from us. That's a direct quote from R.C. So some additional thoughts. Uh, Jesus needed to be fully human. To do everything that God set out for him, he needed to be fully human. I have two notes behind this, or under this. The first reason he needed to be fully human was he needed to fulfill God's intention for humanity. You see, the first Adam failed. The first representative of humanity failed, so there was a need for a greater Adam. Jesus needed to be fully human to fully represent us. The second thing, Jesus needed to be fully human to bring us to glory. Uh, someone, can you turn to Hebrews chapter 2? Hebrews chapter 2, read verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Interesting language the author of Hebrews uses, right? I think some things we can pull from that is that someone had to come and suffer the effects of the curse, right? Someone had to do that on our behalf. Who was that man going to be? And it had to be a man, it had to be a human that undertook this suffering. And that this suffering would lead to the destruction of works of the works of sin and death. So Jesus had to be human to fulfill God's intention for humanity. He had to be human to bring us to glory, according to Hebrews 2. We also see in his humanity that Jesus had a job. He had work to do. And when we think of the work of Christ, uh, we have to think of, well, what is that? Well, we see in the text and the scriptures, Jesus, his work is to do what? The will of his Father. But I think the next question that comes from that, well, what is the will of his Father? If you're reflecting the New Testament scriptures on your knowledge of Christ as we've been journeying through John, what do you think the will of the Father is for the Son? And kind of like the ultimate will, like the, the tip of the iceberg. Any thoughts? To glorify himself. Yes, that fits into it. He is the mediator. How does he become the mediator? Uh huh. Which is the high priest is always the chief mediator between God and the people, and so he needs to be fully human in order to fulfill that role as a mediator between God and man. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. It's it's an easier answer, and I'll lay it out there. Why did Jesus come to Earth? To die. To die, right? The word we use is the atonement. Jesus came to atone. That was the grand work. Yes, it glorified him. Yes, it made him the chief uh, high priest. But his work, what he did, was a cross work. 
an atonement on our behalf. This was the will of the Father, that Jesus would come to earth to die. Yes, all these other things too, but kind of if you look at that peak, the pinnacle, what's the purpose? Why does he come to earth? It's not to be a good teacher. It's not to, to do miracles and heal people who are sick. It's to die, right? And if you read through the gospel, especially Mark, what is he doing? He's just marching to his death. Healing people here, boom, and marching really quick about it. Boom, boom, boom. Giving the disciples here, rebuking people here. But what's he constantly doing? Marching to his death. That's the telos. That's the pinnacle of the whole story. There's actually a moment in all of history, it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. There's a one singular punctiliar moment in all of history that is the cataclysmic event of everything. Of everything. It's not the Revolutionary War. It's not one of the great wars, World War I or II. It's not the election of Donald Trump, even though some people might think that. No, the most important punctiliar transformative moment of all of history is the God-man hanging on a tree, breathing his last breath. It's pretty remarkable. All, all eternity, all history revolves around that moment. This is the Father's will for Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. This is the center of Christianity. Uh, Genesis 3.15 brings about the promise of the gospel. <clears throat> a man, a human, is going to come and he's going to undo the works of the cursed. And all of history is looking forward to who is this one who will undo the works of the serpent. And you go through history and you see a man like Abraham and all of history is crying and the angels are crying, is this him, God? Is this him? No. This next man comes, Moses. Surely it's Moses. As the way the scriptures testify about Moses, of course this man can lead the people of God away from this bondage, away from this curse. It's not Moses. It's not the conquering Joshua. It's not the King David. It's not the wise Solomon. It's the one we read about in Matthew 1.16 where the text says, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. That's the one upon whom all of history hangs. This Jesus who would die for his people. One other thought I want us to grasp about the... Uh, humanity of Christ is that Jesus represents for us the normal state of humanity. So the normal state of humanity is to be like Jesus. This is a pretty um, remarkable statement. What I mean by this is that we were not created for brokenness. We, humanity, was not created for sickness or pain, suffering, disease, torment, depression, all of these ailments we face every single day. We weren't created for that. No. We weren't created for sin or a sinful world. That's the lot we're given. That's the lot we're in. But that's not what we were created for. When we look at Jesus, especially in his glorified state, we see that the natural state of humanity is what we see in the humanity of Jesus. We see a man who is without sin. We see a man who is dependent upon the Father, and we see a man who is empowered by the Spirit. You see, sinning is a perversion of the normal state of humanity. It's abnormal, it's not normal. Uh, I know we, we swim in it every day, and this is all we really know. Um, but this isn't what we are created for. We are created uh, for something bliss, something wonderful, something otherworldly. We don't have time for it today, but this understanding, this concept has massive repercussions 
on how we understand the doctrine of regeneration or what it means to be born again. This concept of being like Jesus, understanding a life without sin. Um, several weeks ago, West Pastor spoke last week, but he spoke also six weeks ago, something like that. <clears throat> and he gave a sermon on Romans 7. Uh, if you remember that sermon, he spoke into this concept a bit about understanding our new relationship with sin as a believer and using Romans 7 as a text. That'd be a good one to go back and listen to, um, a good concept to study. This is, you know, uh, this is one of my hobby horses. That's why I told myself in my notes, we don't have time for it today. I bold is that. Matt, don't talk about it too much. Move on. There's a lot to get to. Uh, but this is one of the most glorious realities in all of Christendom, is that not only Jesus, he saved me, but he changed me. And what does it mean that he changed you? So we move from there to chap- back to chapter 26, the subordination of Christ. Um, R.C. has a few thoughts and a few under- uh, things that he wants to get across to us here. Uh, we read in John 8.28 that Jesus is under the Father's authority. This term authority is, is very, very offensive in our society today. Society does not like the term authority. But R.C. makes it very clear that subordination to authority does not mean inequality. So Jesus at the same time could submit to the Father but also be equal in glory and honor as the Father. Uh, We see that all persons of the Godhead are equal in their nature, their honor, their glory. There is no dividedness in the godness of the persons. They are all equally God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But they relate one to another in specific ways. R.C. teaches that Jesus voluntarily took on this role to submit to the Father in his incarceration, not incarceration, his, oh man, what word am I looking for? Incarnation. Um, We'll get to this in a little bit, and I'm actually going to leave it like, hey, if you want to know more, go study more. Uh, But there is massive controversy on understanding the subordination of Christ today. Um, But no matter what your views is, on the eternal nature of the subordination of the Son, we see that in the humanity of Jesus, He not only obeys the Father, but He willingly and joyfully obeys the Father. Right? It's not some begrudging, R.C. uses the word, He's not begrudgingly obeying the Father. He is with joy, anticipation, uh, love, obeying the Father. If someone can turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and read verse 2. I'll let the text prove my point. It's actually R.C.'s point. I just copied it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah. Uh, One of those very memorable verses, right? For the joy set before him. He did the most challenging, most difficult, most wonderful thing that's ever been done in all of history. Submitting to the Father. So there is today uh, a bit of controversy. And it's over the eternal, uh, it's called eternal functional subordination, EFS. It's basically the, the question that's being asked, or the concept that's being asked, is how do the persons of the Trinity relate to one another? The question how I have it written over here is like clunky, I didn't like it. I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I write this question like in one sentence? Um, is Jesus subordinate to the Father in his role 
only during his earthly ministry, or is this, the, or is this his role in Trinity from eternity to eternity? So basically asking the question, how does Jesus relate to the Father in submission authority roles prior to his incarnation? Is he subordinate to the Father there? Is that how they function? Is this the role that's going on? And this is the question that's being asked in scholarship today. Um, they're seeking people, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people are seeking to understand how do the persons in the Trinity relate one to another? We know they're relational, right? We know that they relate one to another, but how do they relate one to another? Right? And there's two different sides of this debate. We see that the scripture is pretty clear that the Father is not begotten. The scripture is very clear that the Son is begotten of the Father, and that the Son proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what we get from the text. We get a few other things, but that's kind of what we get from the text. Um, but we, it's, it's, it's just philosophical banter. So whereas the deity of Christ is essential, you can't get this wrong, you can get this wrong. I don't think any of these guys really know. They're making their best guess, and there's good people on both sides. Uh, the eternal functional subordination. Yep. So within his function in the Trinity... There's one group that advocates that Jesus is eternally submissive to the Father. Right? And then the Spirit is eternally submissive to the Son and the Father. Again, that doesn't mean that they're unequal. It just means that's how they relate one to another. And there's another group that says, no, there's no submission. It's uh, just neutral across the board, and that's how they relate one to another. Uh, I I listed scholars on both sides. Uh, I listed six. All six of these scholars... I like. I don't dislike any of them, right? So it's not like I put my favorite scholars on one side and my least favorite on the other. I like all six of these guys. But they have a difference of opinion here, and I think that's okay. It doesn't make this an essential doctrine. Um, but I wanted to bring you guys up to date with the controversy. A good book on it is Bruce Ware's The Man Christ Jesus. He was kind of one of the pioneering works into this field that really started the discussion. Um, on his side of the argument, you would have uh, him, obviously, Owen Strand, who used to be a professor at Midwestern. Uh, you all may be familiar with him. Wayne Drudem, the famous systematic theologian, you may be professor, are, uh, familiar with him as well. On the other side, you have Matthew Barrett, who's a professor at Midwestern now. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor, a public speaker, famous pastor, YouTube pastor, in a good way, uh, in North Carolina, and R.C. Sproul, the author of our book. So if you want to do more study into something and dive really deep into a controversy, this could be one to check out. We move from there, and time is waiting, to the sinlessness of Christ. <clears throat> this was one of my favorite sections, um, because this section's absolutely remarkable. Um, the deity of Christ is remarkable, humanity of Christ is remarkable, but thinking of Jesus as human, yet without sin, is unbelievable. Um, so what does R.C. say? Well, he gives us a few things. He teaches us that Jesus was free from transgression. He didn't do anything wrong. But not only was he free from transgression, he was also perfectly obedient. He did everything right. right? He was perfectly submitted to the Father's will. He did all the do's and he didn't do any of the don'ts. R.C. does bring up, well, how, do we, how does this impact our understanding of Hebrews 4.15 with James 1.14 through 15, right? There's a little bit of, well, we talked about earlier about Jesus being tempted in his humanity. Okay, if he's tempted, the author of Hebrews te- teaches that he's tempted. James also teaches about temptation. Now, how do we triangulate these three things? Because it seems like 
Temptation, according to James, is because we're led away by our sinful desires. When Jesus is, is, is tempted, is he being led away by his sinful desires? How do we put these verses together? How do we understand without confusing, confusion? Um, we're still in Hebrews. Someone can do you, read Hebrews 4.15 for us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> two important phrases there. Every respect. What makes you think what? Tempted in every respect. What does that make you think? Kind of makes you think every possible sin that possibly could have happened, he was tempted with, right? Get into that a minute. It's not true. There's people who teach that. Talk about them. But it makes you think that, right? You can you can understand why someone would get there. But if you read the book, what does R.C. sit on to really show us and remind us that this isn't what James is talking about? It's that next phrase that comes at the end. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. Qualifiers are very important, right? He was tempted in every way. Yet without sin. He had no sinful temptations. We look at internal versus external temptations. When Jesus is being tempted, it doesn't mean that he faced every possible temptation. I'll stand here and be very strong. And Greg, if you want to throw me out, you can. Uh, Jesus never struggled with same-sex attraction. He never had that internal sinful desire. We good with that? He never struggled with pedophilia. He never was tempted with that. He never had these internal sinful desires, is what I'm getting at. Jesus' temptation, as we read through the scriptures, are external. We see his great temptation, right, in the wilderness with the devil himself, 40 days, right? We see his temptations and how he endures those by standing firm on the word of God. And we also see the temptation that he faces at the cross to let this event pass by. Again, two external temptations that we read about for Christ in the text, in the scriptures. Um, did I have it on here? I do. The question, Latin, right? Passe Picare? Yes. Yes, Latin. Uh, there's a few views on how one interacts with sin, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe each of these. We'll go A, B, C, D. Passe Picare is A. Passe non Picare is B. Non passe, non picare, C, and non passe, picare, D. And we'll do a little quick game to see who can get this answer right. So passe, picare, it means you're able to sin. You have the ability to sin. Okay, that's how it's defined. Passe, non picare, is you're able not to sin. You have the ability not to sin. Non passe, non picare, means that you're not able to not sin. And then non passe, picare, not able to sin. Which one do we think Jesus is? Able to sin, able to not sin, not able not to sin, or not able to sin? Not able to sin. D. Bing, 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 bing. We see in Pasipakari, able to sin, that's Adam in the garden, right? He has the ability to sin. 
Uh, we see passe non pecare, able not to sin. That's also Adam in the garden. He's able to not sin in that moment. He has a freedom to make decisions, and he doesn't do well with that freedom. Non passe, non pecari, not able not to sin. Well, welcome to our life, right, prior to Christ. Um, and then non passe pecari, that is Jesus, not able to sin. It is an impossibility for him to sin. Why was it an impossibility for Jesus to sin? He's fully human. Why is it impossible? Because he's also fully God. He's also fully God. It's against his nature. Exactly. Uh, we are like out of time. I want to end with this, and I'll be really, really quick. I didn't think I could throw my notes, but we're pretty close. There's a pneumatological Christo- Christology, and I have it here as a little note. Um, and I just want to get to my main point on that real quick, and then I'll let us be done. But this is how Jesus lived. Jesus lived empowered by the Spirit, right? In his humanity, he lived empowered by the Spirit. This is what allowed him uh, outside of his nature, in his humanity, to walk in sinlessness. This is what drove him everywhere he went. We read in the scriptures that the Spirit drove him to certain places or led him to certain places to do certain things. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. When he was baptized, the Spirit rested upon him. But the point I wanted to get to is that this same Spirit that led and empowered Jesus is the same Spirit that indwells every Christian today, which leads to the question, what does this mean for our life and our battle against sin? That's our time. I appreciate you all very much. Any questions? I'm kind of stuck back in the very first chapter. Okay. Um, just, just for my own yes. attention. Yes. Um, Alexander, what was he fighting against? He was fighting against Hamoy Uzias, teaching that Jesus is uh, of like essence. Okay. So Alexander's good guy. He's teaching that Jesus is God. He's the same essence. Arius is teaching Jesus is created. He was the first created being and that he is not the same essence as the Father. So Arius versus Alexander. Obviously, there's more people in the story, but those are the two that history kind of hones in on. Thank you. Alexander would be welcome in our church. Arius would be disciplined. Alrighty. Thank you all very much. Um, if you have any other questions throughout the time, please ask me, and then I'll, I'll email you uh, my PowerPoint if you still like that. Great.